0: The idea here is that this doesn't have to be this big, complex, um, long project that's going to take, or a long initiative that takes months or perhaps even years. Really where you start to see a lot of traction, a lot of um, value is doing this when you have a small question, just go out and ask a handful of people, get their reaction, be informed, and move on to your next challenge. And by doing that, the team around you can also see how easy and powerful it can be to and quick uh, to to pull this feedback in uh, where you need it.
1: Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we help you bridge the empathy gap to bring you a valuable new understanding of some of the most innovative ideas and trends shaping the future of business and customer experience.
0: So hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing.
2: And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing.
0: And today we're recapping our third season of the Human Insight Podcast. Hard to believe we've reached 27 episodes at this point. Uh, It was a great season three with a diverse group of guests from product management, marketing, UX, and other industry experts and observers. Andy, any quick takeaways from season three here?
2: I thought it was great that there were such different perspectives, as you said, but um, so many converging on some of the same themes we've been talking about throughout the podcast around uh, listening to customers, this idea that, um, you know, perspectives from sort of outside of the team being so important uh, and sort of not getting lost in our own perspective of how we think people either use our products or consumer marketing. So I thought that theme was really great and pretty prevalent throughout the entire season.
0: Yeah, I think you're spot on. That was one of the things that surfaced through every single interview was the importance of listening to your customers and not just looking at data, but making those human-to-human connections with them. I was actually quite amazed how it, how it came up in in every episode, uh, even though it is something, you know, we strongly believe in, it's uh, interesting to see that that everyone in every role that we brought onto the show had something important to say about that as well.
2: Yeah, and I think different maybe from season two, where, you know, we had so much of the pandemic starting up, and then, you know, now we're kind of been in it for a while. I thought it was also interesting how much folks were talking about markets and buyers and consumer behavior and and employee behavior sort of continually changing and sort of the pace of change. And I thought it was interesting how folks spoke about it less as a single disruption and sort of more of a way things are going to be going forward, that, you know, people are going to have more and more choices that sort of digital business models mean people can, you know, change the app on their phone and change their service provider for whatever that services they're looking for. And so I also thought it was interesting how many folks were sort of looking for ways for their their teams to sort of understand those changes, but also a lot of conversation about how do you help align people on what those changes are? Sort of this sense of like, we all kind of feel it happening, but how do we align the people, not only on my team, but maybe the people I work with across the organization on the idea that, you know, this is, this is the way things are going to be going forward, that uh, people are going to be able to to move quickly and what they're thinking about. I thought that was an interesting um, thread as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And actually when we kicked off the uh, season with April Dunford, who is a thought leader and also the author of a book called Obviously Awesome, which was actually recommended to us by a guest on season one of the podcast. So we were able to bring her on and she actually had this really uh, strong point around this idea that the market is always changing um, that buyers are always changing, competitors are always changing, like the, the, it's just you're in a constant uh, state of change. And so being able to stay connected with what's going on, not just with your customers, but also with the market around you was something that she brought forward. And to your point, it wasn't something that sort of like a moment in time, it's something that she believes is important, um, and has you know published a book on on how to actually
3: uh, how to actually adapt uh, in in these types of environments. There's two things to understand. Like one is we don't just carve positioning in stone and that's it. We do it once and we never come back to it. Our products are constantly changing. The market itself is changing. Our competitors are changing. The way buyers behave is changing. So naturally, our positioning is going to have to evolve over time. So. Back when I was a VP marketing, we would do a positioning checkup every six months where we'd get the cross-functional team together and we'd look at the component pieces of positioning and say, hey, has anything changed in the competitive landscape? Um, What do our differentiated features look like? Is that different than six months ago because folks have caught up with us or we've released some new stuff? And then how does that impact our differentiated value? For bigger companies, the changes tend to be less frequent in terms of you know if if you're a bigger company and there isn't a lot of change happening in your market right now the positioning tends to be fairly evolutionary and it happens less frequently That said, there's a lot of things that can force a change in positioning, even if you're a really, really big company. So something like COVID hits, for example, (laughs) and then you're forced to react to a giant change in the market that was unforeseen. A big acquisition will force you to change your positioning. And so a bunch of the clients I'm working with the last couple of months are big companies that have done an acquisition that are now having to go back and readjust the positioning as a result of that. Sometimes what you'll get is, the market essentially changes in a way and it's subtle over time, but all of a sudden, you know, the market that you were strong in and winning in just kind of doesn't exist anymore. And has kind of moved on to something else. And it's going to require a fairly drastic change in positioning to get people to understand that you're not that old thing anymore. You're now this new thing. So we're always working on positioning. I don't think it's just for startups, although, you know, for a lot of startups, the positioning stuff is kind of do or die at a certain point in their
2: life. Yeah. I liked the point you made around that. It it was, um, both insightful. I love things where you go, Oh yeah, like I hadn't like that's right. But at the same time, you sort of immediately inherently feel like, yeah, I feel that. Like that's sort of what happens in my life too. That, you know, we're changing, our competitors are changing, our buyers are changing, their buyers are changing. And sort of all of that leads to this like, how do I, how do I keep on top of that? Um, and how do I not get caught up in my own perspectives while I do that? And I thought she had some really great. Uh, points of view on that. She talked about even in sort of B2B, like how do you think about that in in things like your sales pitch? And I thought that was interesting uh, where you think about how long it takes a B2B company to go from like a new idea to some marketing content to like training your sales team and everything else. And it sort of feels like by the time you get to that point in time, it's almost time to start over again and get ready to figure out what the next thing is and how to train the team on that change. Um, I thought she had some really um, sort of fun and pragmatic points of view on how to do that.
0: Yeah, she was a lot of fun to have on the show. And I thought, I really love this other point she made about, you know, this idea that you have good fit customers and, and I guess what she calls bad fit customers and going through the activity of who falls into which bucket is really helpful for teams uh, for prioritizing messaging and, and go to market. I think in some cases, when there's broad solutions that fit a whole bunch of buyers, um, getting the team to go through that exercise of prioritizing and figuring out, okay, who are we actually going to go after? I thought that was a, a nice way to sort of think about the opportunity, and then to uh, pile onto that, how do you then bring those good fit customers to life um, through talking to them and, and bringing them into the team, exposing the team to them, so they can start to you know build messaging and 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 other strategies around those good fit customers.
3: So this idea of best fit customer is really important. And to be honest with you, in B2C, I have no idea how you do it because B2C is not my jam at all. And and in fact, I think this might be really, really hard thing to do in B2C. But let me tell you about B2B because this is something I know a lot about. So one one of the first times where I had this kind of epiphany about, you know, there's good fit customers and not good fit customers was this early in my career. And I worked at this company and I was trying to figure out what are what are actual competitive alternatives were? And so I did a survey of our existing customer base and I asked them, you know, who do we compete with? And then I, I had a bunch of different questions, but one of the questions was, who do we compete with? And the other one was like, when you bought our product, what other things did you look at? And so I was going to try to get, I assumed I would get this nice picture of the competitive landscape. And instead what I got, so I surveyed everybody. I got a whole bunch of results. I think we had maybe a hundred companies responded to this thing and I graphed it and it was a mess. There was no pattern. It was, it was all over the place. So I'm sitting there looking at this thing, going, "Well, that's depressing. I haven't learned anything. Like people think we compete with all kinds of stuff here. This is a this is a mess." And while I was all depressed about this, staring at my screen, uh, my boss walked by and and the CEO, and he says, "What you doing?" And I said, "Well, I did this survey and I'm trying to figure out competitive, you know, who we compete with." And this is what I got. It's a bunch of junk and doesn't actually tell me anything. And he says, "Hmm," and he looks looking at the graph and he goes wait, who said we compete with that? And I was like, "Mm, I don't know. Let me pull up the spreadsheet, pull up the spreadsheet. I'm like, "Uh, that's Bank of Montreal. And he goes, oh, Bank of Montreal. We hate Bank of Montreal. We wish we never sold Bank of Montreal. They're the worst customer we have. They're using us in some weird way. You know who I do not care what they think? I do not care what Bank of Montreal. Take that out of there. I don't want you ever asking them what they, you know, he's like, they're weird. They're a weird customer. We'll never sell another customer that looks like them. I'm like, okay, we'll take that out. He goes like, uh, now I got to see your spreadsheet, April. Like who else is on this spreadsheet? Cause I think you're getting some bad data here. So I pull the spreadsheet out and he's like, Oh, and he starts crossing them off. Not these people, not these people, not these he's like, Oh, this one we sold in our first month of business. They bought, bought it for some weird use case. They're weird. Take them off. And so we crossed off a whole bunch, like maybe 20 or 30 companies out of 100, and then all of a sudden, there's the pattern. So what it taught me was that sometimes what I've got is bad data, and I'm mixing up good fit customers with bad fit customers when I'm asking questions like, what are we compared with? And so for positioning, what we're trying to get at is positioning that makes our differentiated value really sing for customers that really, really care about that differentiated value, these best fit people. So I actually don't want to pull in the data from these bad fit folks because it's going to contaminate my thinking. What I actually want to know is for the people that you know, love us, the people that are super happy, the folks that closed they they closed with us really quickly. They didn't ask for a discount. They intuitively got what our value was all about. After the sale, they love us. doesn't mean they never complain or challenge us, but the challenge we get from them is good, right? Because they're using the product in the way we intended. Those people I care a lot about. And every b two b company out there has a group of customers that are like that, and then they got a few that are not that. <laughs> and the really dangerous part about it is often particularly in startups, you'll you'll get a startup that only has 20 or 30 customers, but one of them is Walmart and it's you know and it's huge and they do half their revenue with this one big customer and even though it's a bad fit, that customer has this massive influence over what we're doing in positioning and what we're doing everywhere else. And what we do in the workshops that I do is we'll have this conversation about who's good fit, like who is easy to sell to, who's really happy, who, you know, recommends us without us having it. And and importantly, who's not so good fit? Like, even though they might be a big customer, maybe we landed them and maybe they pay us a lot, but we don't expect to close another deal like that ever. And we'll write down the bad fit ones, and we'll essentially put them in the parking lot and say, for the rest of this exercise, they don't count. So when I say, what would the customer do if we didn't exist? I don't care about Walmart. I care about everybody else.
2: Yeah, and I like the way she talked about, excuse me, a team doing that. Uh, It sort of reminded me, uh, I think it was maybe two episodes later when, when Teresa was on, and you were talking about you know different perspectives and different roles and a lot of conversations about how people sometimes hear what they want to hear.
4: When we let one person be the voice of the customer, it's almost a trump card. Right? Like if you and I are having a debate and and you've the o- you're the only one who's talked to a customer and you say, "Well, this is what customers want." I don't really have a leg to stand on. And then the challenge with that is I'm bringing a perspective that is relevant and matters to the conversation. And we're not going to surface that perspective because I'm not on equal footing when it comes to the voice of the customer. So I really want to see the team engage with customers together so they're all the voice of the customer. And then that really creates a more egalitarian mindset where we can actually leverage everybody's perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the benefit of having everybody observing or talking to customers is that this stuff is not a science, right? And so, the way that you see something versus the way that I see something versus the way maybe another person on a team, on our team, if we were working together, saw there, it's all a little bit different. And so, it's also worthy of discussion, right? For you to come to the right perspective of what does the customer actually want? Because what I think might be different from what you think.
4: Yeah. So, I think definitely taking advantage of the different perspectives and the different roles are going to hear different things in an interview. Engineers in particular are gonna hear things that a product manager or designer might dismiss as not as impossible, or not even consider it because there's this really strong organizational truth that there's no way we could do that. And then the engineer might be hearing it for the first time and think about, actually, that's not that hard, we could tackle that, or here's a new angle on that, or there's this new API that unlocks that. Um, so we all hear things based on our previous knowledge and experience. And because those three roles tend to have pretty diverse backgrounds, We're going to get way more out of every customer conversation if we have a diverse group participating.
2: I thought that was really interesting to think about how, you know, different perspectives come from people hearing the same things, but maybe perceiving it differently or hearing what they want to hear when you're going through that process. And so I thought sort of thought that juxtaposed with what April was talking about, about, you know, how do you align teams on things? then it was interesting to think about, Um, almost having to actively do that when getting all this feedback, because if you just sort of leave people to do it on their own as well, people have a tendency to hear what they want to hear. And so you sort of have to have this mindset I felt like of, of proactively thinking about how to go out and find that kind of feedback and understand what those changes are. But at the same time, also think about how as an organization are we going to coalesce? What are we actually hearing together to go do? Because having your team all hear the same thing but have diverging perspectives on what that means really just means you then have to double down on alignment again of like, okay, like what are we all hearing and how do we align on what to go do? And I thought that was really interesting as well. I feel like I've experienced that before in my career where it's sort of like we all we all got the same bit of feedback, but it sounds like we all heard different things. <laughs> that was sort of really interesting to think about how that can impact, you know, product teams, design teams, marketing teams, um, things like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Teresa Torres, she was um, another author on our show of continuous discovery habits, and I thought uh, she had some great points. Like you mentioned, Andy, what I thought was interesting about the sharing and collaborating is that she gave um, the history of this being. Something that is traditionally separate. So, what I mean by that is that traditionally there's a difference between the motion of going and collecting feedback, customer insights, and then the motion of actually sharing it. And what she is promoting or, or what she's uh, sort of suggesting is that you actually want to combine those activities. So, it's not a, this discrete activity that one person or a small group of people are doing, but you're actually bringing everybody together to collect and consume
4: at the same time. What's hard about discovery is you quickly get overwhelmed. Like if you interview a customer every week, you're taking in a lot of new information about your customer. So you have to be continuously synthesizing what you're learning. If you're running a series of assumption tests every week, you have to be synthesizing and evolving your solution ideas continuously every week. And so one of my goals with the book was to teach teams how to do this collaboratively in a way that makes their work visible as they're doing it. So some examples of this is I teach the use of an interview snapshot. Interview snapshot is just a one-page template that helps teams quickly synthesize what did they hear in an interview. And it's designed to be a synthesis exercise. Like you're not creating it to document the interview. You're creating it to have a collaborative conversation about what did we just hear from this customer? The side effect is it's also a really nice visual to communicate what you learned in the interview. And then the same is true with opportunity solution trees and story maps and assumption maps and experience maps. Like all of these things are team synthesis and alignment activities. But because they're visual, they're also really great ways to show your work and to keep the rest of the team um, following along and all your stakeholders following along. So I think one of the keys is to combine the showing the doing and the sharing. Because when we separate them, when we say, let's do a dozen interviews and then when we're done, we'll put together a research deck. Well, we don't always get to the research deck. And even when we do, nobody reads it because it's too long, nobody has time. And the problem with research decks is we end up synthesizing down to these like overgeneralized research principles that essentially are platitudes, like it's not real research. I'm not saying real research wasn't done, but the synthesis of it is not that actionable or timely anymore. Whereas if we're really synthesizing one interview at a time, you're starting to pull out like these are the specifics. These are the unique things we heard from this customer. And I actually think right now in the current world, after what we went through in 2020, especially with all the issues that were raised around social justice and inequity, I actually think it's really important that we treat each individual customer as the unique person that they are and that we not overgeneralize in our synthesis. And so I love this idea of like, let's just talk about what we learned from this person. That's our unit of analysis. And then later we can take those individual bits and think about what are the patterns. But let's just slow down and see like, oh, I'm talking to Janelle. Who's Janelle? What did I learn about Janelle? As opposed to we talked to these 12 people, what did we learn? And I
0: think that's really interesting because to your point, you're able to sort of talk through, you know, what are all the things that we're hearing? What are all the different perspectives and how can we make sense and align on that as a team to move forward?
2: Yeah, there was a a couple of points during this season when folks talked about sort of the the flywheel of feedback and sort of this idea of how do things build? And I think that's also, you know, to your point, uh, how do you... How do you proactively collect this information with that? How do you build a muscle of different feedback or how to go have teams do different things? And it's sort of one of these things where it's either hard to do every step of the way or you figure out some way to create this flywheel where people are open to the feedback. They're thoughtful about sharing it making sure people are sort of coming along on the journey together. And then from there, you're sort of building this, this capability to kind of continually be learning about these changing customer behaviors. Again, whether that's in, in product or in marketing or in employee experience or any of these other areas. Um, so I thought that was also a, a pretty uh, regular theme throughout the season of sort of how do people build this into something that's an ongoing process and sort of not just a, a tool to go solve a specific problem, but sort of something that starts to drive almost the intuition of the team, like sort of a shared understanding of of the customer what it's like to be a customer and, and how you go through that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Emily Carrion uh, from Esper she's a vp of marketing that was one of our guests and she actually used that term specifically like if you get this right by focusing on the customer you can create this kind of flywheel internally that basically once you start you don't you don't want to stop right cuz you're building momentum and you're continually pulling this into your process and making it something that's making it something that you just do versus something that feels like oh this extra activity that the team has to go take down
5: that is, that's how we get, you know, that's how we help the relationship stay sticky. That's how, um, you know, you get, then get referrals. Like it's this kind of flywheel if you do it right. And I've seen the opposite with other companies. If they drop the ball on that or they get too big or they start focusing less on the customer, you have to go through four tiers of support just to talk to a human. And it's like, that's a crappy experience. Like why would someone stay working with you? So for us um, and, you know, the different companies I've been at, like we've really driven that home. I think it can be a competitive advantage to consistently focus on, you know, customer engagement, having them top of mind, letting them influence the roadmap and, and all different things like that.
0: Um, she talked about how it also helps with prioritization. So similar to April's point around prioritizing an audience, Um, or a best fit customer, she talked about prioritizing what you're going to work on, what you're going to bring to market. I think she said something along the lines of there's like, you know, 50,000 things you can do at any given time. And I think many people can relate to that. So using customer feedback as your compass, as a way to sort of prioritize, what are the things we should be working on? What's important to our customers? And how do we uh, make progress against those?
2: Yeah, I I really like that episode. And I feel like, um, you know, I've talked to you before on the podcast about my background being in in product management, but I feel like there are moments when I really relate to marketers and that sort of sense of like so many different things to go do. And I've only got so much time and so many resources. I mean, that is in many ways the job of a product manager. I always use the analogy, it's a little bit like being, I imagine what it's like to be a, a sports coach at a big college football. Uh, town or a, a pro sports town where when you walk into your neighborhood grocery store, everyone in there has an opinion on what you should be doing and how you could be doing it better. And that's sort of a product manager. Everybody has ideas. You know, Everybody in a company works with a product. Everybody has a million thoughts. And you're really just trying to prioritize those things. But you're also trying to communicate back to everybody what customers think is most important. And so I think it's been interesting. We heard a few folks talk about how to take the the true voice of real customers with a point of view of what it's like to be a customer and what they're doing, sort of use that as a feedback mechanism to communicate, not just ideas into the process, but sort of decisions out of the process. Like, here's why we're doing something. Here's what people been asking us to do. And I think it sort of speaks to that uh, feeling in some of these roles where there's, there is often no shortage of things to go do. The, 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 challenges. How do I not only decide what things to go do, but then how do I communicate what those things are and why they're important and align everybody around those? And I think that's another area where we heard folks talking about using the idea of sharing this information and aligning people around it as being one of the key concepts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Emily also tells a funny story where it was, I think it was a past company she was at where um, they were finding that
5: customers were having trouble logging into their cybersecurity VPN. And so we took that to the engineering team. We're like, look, it's too hard. And they're like, oh, it's not too hard. They can just do this and that and this thing. And like this really convoluted workaround that they as engineers are very comfortable with. And our customer support team was like, that's too hard. Like they're not gonna be able to do that. And they're like, oh yeah, they can do that. Let's go build something else. So we're like, okay, how do we show them how hard this is? So I am a user testing fan we actually spun it up and you know had asked you know asked people to go through this we got to co- you know to collect the video we asked them to you know jot down to talk through what they were going through and it was hysterical right cuz you you'd literally hear them say like uh what the heck like this makes no sense right and then there was some you know colorful language also <laughs> involved And then the engineering team, like they can't argue with that, right? Like it's in their face. They're seeing a vision, um, you know, the screen. And my favorite part is we could then accurately diagnose where's the worst of this problem. It's not this whole thing is a problem, but we found that like this one step was like everyone got stuck here. And it was like, and by everyone, my sample size was like five, right? It doesn't have to be this massive sample size, but when you're getting to watch people. You don't need as big of a sample size because it's really obvious. Okay. Every single person has got stuck here. So that's my favorite way to be like, this isn't my opinion versus your opinion. Like, let's see what the customer is trying. We're there. We're trying to get them to through this so they can have what's like what's the success moment. And then let's watch if they can get there and how they get there. And then how do we make it more delightful for them? And I think that's a big Uh, A big theme I've heard in this season,
0: too, is people just telling different stories like that or just watching even a single customer bring something to life can actually spark significant change in an organization.
2: Yeah, I think um, if I'm not mistaken, it was Carlos from uh, Product School talked about this a bit, too, which is sort of the idea of, of aligning folks on the why.
1: The other side of the coin is, well, if you don't really code, market, design, or sell, Why are you here, right? What type of value do you add? And I think it's our responsibility to prove that it is a need to bring the the voice of the customer to the conversation, to align all the different stakeholders, to make sure that you are building the right thing at the right time. And even though, yes, technically we're not the ones, you know, literally shipping we we need to feel comfortable playing that role as a head coach where like when things go well, it's important to give credit to the team. And when things don't go so well, I think it's also important to take responsibility.
2: And I think sometimes the why is easier to understand when it's a narrative, something you can relate to something like to your example, where you see somebody struggling with something versus, you know, support ticket volume in this login thing went up 10%. It's sort of a little hard for people to get their arms around. Like, what does that mean? Like, you know, what, what are we doing to fix that? And sometimes it's like, well, we'll do we'll do call deflection in the support center and solve that problem. And it's like, no, no, like you're not really going to that experience. And so I I like the idea of product teams communicating that why back out and using the voice of the customer to sort of help align everybody on those priorities and why these things are important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Another uh, kind of area we explored a bit uh, was thinking about and looking at not just um, getting feedback from a single person, uh, you know, or a a small group of people, but also making sure that who you're hearing from is diverse.
1: Because as we build global products, we need to represent that user internally. And it's really hard to have just one person wear the user hat. We need a diversity of opinion and perspectives.
0: So, you know, similar to how we talked about, you know, if you're a product team and you're sitting listening to customer feedback and you're all hearing the same thing but interpreting it differently, uh, you can sort of apply that same idea to your customers. Your customers have different perspectives to share. When they experience your experience, everyone does experience it a little bit differently. And so being able to balance uh, diversity in your feedback, making sure you're hearing from a wide variety of customers um, with diverse backgrounds and perspectives can really help the team see the bigger picture. And so that was something that Carlos talked about as well as other guests this season.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also um, the sort of opt-in nature, not only of of giving the feedback, but of understanding why customers do something. I think it was Brent um, had a really interesting set of comments. I felt like when he talked about um, using data to drive user behavior but not really giving them a say in
6: in why they want to do it or don't want to do something the more digital your interactions are the more trackable they are you know more data you can capture and then it's not about just you know this single transaction it's okay well what leads to that transaction what can lead how can we use data to get more transactions and so it starts out, I think maybe in some uh, circumstances it does start out with a company wanting to provide better products and services and experiences you know for the customer because that you know that'll be good for the company. But along the way, you know that capturing data provides uh, opportunities that they probably weren't even uh, thinking about originally. but because you're able to capture and, and, and look at all this data, then all of a sudden, Some of the activities go from, well, we're doing this because it's good for the customer to, oh, well, you know, this is actually good for us. I mean, and I think that's where, you know, we kind of have the, where we are today with this stuff is a lot of this data is being captured and used in ways that customers aren't even given the opportunity to say yay or nay to. And so when it gets to that point, customers, of course, lose trust because eventually, you know, customers are going to be like, why are you collecting that? And because they don't see that as a benefit to them. They see that as a benefit to the company. So I think we're at a point now where there's a lot of skepticism from the customers because you're not only looking, you know, customers feel like you're not only looking to make a make a, a sale off me. Now you're looking to use my data, you know, in addition to my my transactions to do stuff. And a lot of that stuff is things that I wouldn't have said, you know, yes to if I knew about it up front.
2: So I think this is sometimes where, you know, you hear about product teams or marketing teams or e-commerce teams that are trying to drive some kind of outcome that they're being measured on. And often they'll channel users into going and doing something, but very often it's not what the user wants to be doing. So I've always enjoyed as a product manager, when you'd be in a meeting and somebody would say, Hey, we, you know, traffic to this page is up, you know, 50%. You kind of want to think in the back of your mind, like, is that because we're making people go there or is that because people are, are wanting to come to this thing that we've created? And so I thought that was an interesting perspective as well he shared, which is really sort of this idea of getting back to empowering users and, and trusting them with their feedback and, and their decisions versus sort of feeling like in some ways we're being manipulated with these data-driven algorithms on sort of what our behavior should be. Um, and I thought that was an interesting perspective as well.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I really loved his perspective on this idea that... <clears throat> you know customers uh, you know they're they're aware uh, there, there's this fine balance right of um, companies collecting data and how much information they disclose to you about what data they're collecting and actually what they're doing with it and without making that clear your customers start to build assumptions around what you're tracking what they're doing with it and eventually getting to a place where they feel like Really, unless you're being proactive and communicating, your customers end up feeling like they're just using your data to benefit themselves. And so this idea of kind of flipping the narrative on that, right? And I think that that's the power of a lot of the work that the guests on our podcast this season and in previous seasons do is finding people who are actually willing to give that feedback. They know that their feedback is being captured and doing so in a way where they understand that that feedback is being used to better the experience. I think there's something there about you know building a relationship like that with your customers to really better understand them and to eventually or essentially um build a better experience.
2: Yeah, I always I think that's spot on Janelle. I always find it amazing when you read stories about these massive investments companies are making in things like uh, analytics and machine learning to try to understand their customers and you sort of get to the end of the you know, the article or the story and you kind of go like, well, okay, but maybe you could have just asked some customers what they think of this thing. Right. And, and sort of value your relationship with them enough that you could have gone out to some of your top shoppers or some of your biggest users and said, Hey, we're sort of redesigning this whole thing. And what goals do you have in mind? And, you know, how would, you, you know, what do you think of these couple of options? And, and instead, you know, an incredible amount of money is sunk into trying to avoid, really going and asking people for their honest feedback. And I think as consumers, it's sort of doubly negative. One, we feel like we're in this relationship with a brand who isn't asking either us or anyone like us for our feedback. So we sort of don't feel included in the process. And I think the second thing is, I think we're all getting a little sick of being tracked. I mean, I, I mean, you see it in some of the messaging that's coming out in, in the mobile phone space and others where there are brands taking a stance on, on privacy. Apple's done a great job of this and, and now there are new features of like, I don't want to be tracked across applications. I think that's true. I think as consumers, even the brands and the companies I really like, what I really want is them to understand my experience and my needs and build a product that meets those. It's not you know ever increasing amounts of surveillance and tracking of everything I do and sort of making assumptions about my behavior. So I really think there's something there around building trust and getting back to this idea of a great relationship with your customer involves... Number one, caring to ask. And number two, caring to listen, like actually investing the time as a team. We heard this throughout the season of like consuming what comes back out of asking them for their feedback and actually aligning your team and doing something about it.
0: Yes, wholeheartedly agree. And I think kind of one of the last themes that I'd I'd love to touch on and where I heard it, especially with Andrew from Health Catalyst, he talked about how he's seen the most impact uh, with the work that his team is doing when they're doing something that he called micro-testing.
2: We've kind of learned over time that we get the most bang for our buck really focusing on micro-testing as opposed to just like big longitudinal benchmark-style studies. Because as much as the data that we have collected from doing benchmark studies can be meaningful, sometimes finding ways to get it into the backlog, get it into the roadmap can be a real challenge. Whereas if we focus on this is the thing that the team's working on right now, and this is the thing that we can help drive decisions um, or uh, drive the um, direction um, with that research. I think that's that's really where we found the sweet spot is for incorporating research into our design yeah. process.
0: And I think that that's something that I also want to you know make sure our listeners understand when we when we talk about this idea of collecting feedback and listening and you know, balancing that with the data you may be collecting about your customers and communicating what your process and strategy is. The idea here is that this doesn't have to be this big, complex, um, long project that's going to take or a long initiative that takes months or perhaps even years, really where you start to see a lot of traction, a lot of Um, value is doing this when you have a small question, just go out and ask a handful of people, get their reaction, be informed and move on to your next challenge. And by doing that, the team around you can also see how easy and powerful it can be to and quick uh, to to pull this feedback in uh, where you need it.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I I, I know in uh, companies I've worked at before, sometimes we'd use our internal users this way, especially if we were somewhat co-located back before the complete uh, remote digital world we live in now. It'd be like, hey, let's walk down the hall and ask a couple of the marketers or salespeople or whatever You know which of these things they would do, and that was always really valuable. And that was just in the building. And it's like now, imagine if that teams of people like that from all kinds of customers in a broader geographic area were available to you in that same kind of way, where pretty short turnaround time. Again, you can just you know small question, but I think you're right. You know the idea of stacking a bunch of these small questions on top of each other over time where you're getting feedback on what you're doing, I think, again, is what we're looking for as consumers. I want people to build experiences where people like me have given them feedback of what it's like to use their travel app or use their car rental app or buy from their restaurant or whatever that is. Um, you know, And it doesn't have to be a giant redesign. It can just be a series of smaller things that you're learning over time and sort of building that customer intuition.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. So yeah, great season packed with a ton of awesome guests, great stories. I'm always so appreciative of people spending time with us to sort of talk through their learnings, their perspectives, so valuable to our listeners and and to us as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and they're such nice folks. I say this uh, all the time when we talk about our guests in our industry, but I really do um, appreciate the kinds of people that are in and around this area, in part because they're just like empathetic people that care about other people's experiences. I think they make for uh, for very thoughtful guests on the on the show and, and really appreciative of the time they spent with us.
0: Yes, absolutely.
2: So Janelle, coming up for next season, I know we're uh, lining up guests and, and getting themes running and all that kind of stuff, but I know one of the big things that'll be on our mind and, and just to share with our listeners. Uh, so we have a, a book coming out that, uh, that you and I work together on. Uh, And maybe you could uh, tell our guests a little bit about the book and why we wrote it and and sort of some of the themes we're going to see coming out of the book and and how those are going to work its way into the podcast next year.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Happy to share. So yes, we have a book coming. Um, It will be published in February 15th of 2022. So very exciting as we kind of gear up to get that out into different audiences. What I love most about the book, and and I, I can give you a quick rundown of what's included is that it's really built on uh, probably 20 plus customer stories and examples. So you'll see that throughout. And that's one thing that, you know, really brought a ton of uh, perspective and value and uh, really just, just brought this all to life. And so we're so thankful to our customers who, you know, provided us with the stories Uh, That really brought some of these themes to life. So in terms of how the book is structured, the first part is about sort of building the value of human insight and, and listening to your customers and observing them. The second part is how to actually do it. So breaking this down into, you know, how do you find the right people? How do you balance who you hear from? What are the types of questions you can ask? And ultimately, what do you do with the information? Like, how do you take action on it and build this shared understanding within your company? Um, the third part has different use cases and playbooks for different types of teams. So, what could a product team do with user testing, or what could um, what types of user tests could a marketing team do? And then the last part of the book is built on how do you build this change in your organization to sort of rally around the customer. Um, And also, you know, sort of bring their perspective in as people into your decisions. When we plan for season four, uh, we actually are having guests on for each episode where they um, are the the sort of roster for season four for the podcast is uh, every guest or um, every. So there's uh, I don't know what's wrong with me right now. So um, for season four, I'm going to do it this time. Um, So for season four, we have lined up uh, customer stories and and guests who can tell those stories that are included in the book. So everyone from HelloFresh to AAA to Crikey and even Microsoft, we've got guests coming in to really talk about their story in more depth to share other sort of insights they have related to the work that they do in the space, and really to help us, you know, shape the story and tell the story of the power of listening to your customers as people and not just uh, looking at data. So super excited for next season. It's going to be a great uh, set of episodes.
2: It's awesome. The whole thing is, uh, is very meta. It's a book about listening to your customers. And the way the book is done is by listening to our customers and using a whole bunch of customer stories. So um, I'm really excited about it. The the book is great. And I think it is uh, it is both pragmatic in how people can approach it, but also I think thinks really big about how you can change your company and your relationship with your customers and, and create a model where employees really care about hearing those perspectives. And so, um, yeah, it'll be exciting to have the book out. It'll be exciting to hear us. Uh, over the course of next season of the podcast um, sort of illuminate some of those stories with the the folks that shared them with us.
0: Yes, absolutely. So season four launches in January. Uh, Until then, you can go back and listen to any of our past episodes of the Human Insight Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And happy holidays. And we will chat with you all in 2022.
1: Want to keep the conversation going? You can visit our podcast hub, usertesting.com slash podcast, and check out past episodes. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or Google Play, so you can never miss a good episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it with a friend or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.